Arrakis. Dune. Wasteland of the Empire. And the most valuable planet in the universe. Because it is here, and only here, where spice is found. The spice. Without it, there is no commerce in the Empire. There is no civilization. Arrakis. Dune. Home of the spice. Greatest treasure in the universe. And he who controls it, controls our destiny. Welcome to Now Playing's Dune Retrospective Series. Do we have worm sign? Who shall we have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen? Part of the Now Playing David Lynch Review Series. Remember, walk without rhythm and we won't attract the worm. Hosted by Stuart. My greatest student and my greatest disappointment. Jacob. I can kill with a word. And his word shall carry death eternal. And Arnie. Men admire his courage. It will take more than courage to survive what's coming. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring back at you. And join Stuart at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Frank Herbert's Dune novels. They know a storm is coming. Time to let them know I'm here. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. It's not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. Listener discretion is advised. May the hand of God be with you. May the hand of God be with us all, Duncan. Today we're discussing Frank Herbert's Dune, starring William Hurt, Alec Newman, Saskia Reeves, James Watson, and a whole bunch of checks. <laughs> there weren't too many checks written for this, no. <laughs> Directed by John Harrison. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and the podcaster has awoken again. Steward in L.A. And this is the host with a pretty mouth with a sting of a scorpion, Jacob. You know, we've often mocked Sci-Fi Channel, Home of Sharknado, Man-Thing, Return of the <laughs> Living Dead, Rave to the Grave, Firestarter Rekindled, and soon Beyond Reanimator. But I just want to say the movie we're covering today, Frank Herbert's Dune, is kind of the thing that gave Sci-Fi Channel its identity. It really didn't have original programming. It was just sort of a dumping ground for old sci-fi shows. I think they had Farscape and some Kevin Sorbo show called Andromeda. But other than that, Battlestar Galactica and everything came after the big ratings hit that was this $20 million production. Dune, a sci-fi original movie. Are you guys encouraged? Does that make you feel better? The, the only thing that's encouraging me is that we are going to get more time to tell this story. I, I think that was my main problem last week was that what seemed so condensed. It just got so confusing because of that. I am looking forward to being able to see this film yeah, spread out a little bit longer and get into 
some of that minutia that I think you need to get into to understand the story. Yeah, sci-fi must have been showing stuff I watched. In fact, I know it did. They had a lot of Star Trek reruns and stuff because I knew about this when it happened. And I had seen Lynch's Dune once at that point, And I was like, I want to understand what the hell they were trying to tell me happened. So I wanted to watch this, but I never did. Basically, because it was a miniseries, and it was long, it was three nights, and even when it came out on DVD, I remember it coming out, I was at a Suncoast video, and they had it there, I'm like, wow, this is coming out, and yet, I just never could find the motivation to spend six hours trying to, only for curiosity's sake, because I didn't feel that Lynch had (laughs) conveyed to me what the book was supposed to be, so... I'll have to admit that 16, 17 years have passed and I still didn't have the curiosity, but now I have the obligation, so here I am. (laughs) If ever there was a time, I think, yes. And I think that is the big reason to go to this, right? Is, Is that even as a fan of what Lynch did with the property last week, I can recognize it was not a telling of Frank Herbert's Dune. So if a fan of the book wanted to rescue it from Lynchian weirdness, I can't hate on that. I understand why Richard Rubenstein would option the book and spend all of his time pulling in his buddies from Tales from the Dark Side. He got the director of Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, John Harrison, on board to write and direct this. And uh, actually got a pretty illustrious behind-the-scenes crew. Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, is one of my favorite cinematographers of all time. He shot Apocalypse Now, Last Emperor, Last Tango in Paris, even the recent Woody Allen movie Cafe Society. He really does amazing things with color. Uh, The production designer worked on the movie Delicatessen. The costume designer won an Oscar for Amadeus. These are talented people that want to tackle a complicated, very good novel. I've already reviewed at Books and Nachos. I want to give them a chance. The fact that it's a TV miniseries, six hours, eh, okay. I mean, they need more time. But Sci-Fi Network, uh, I'm just going to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. A lot of things that go out with their name on it, they just bought cheap. But this they actually invested in. They wanted to make it work. Yeah, you're, you're talking about costumers and cinematographers. A lot of talent on a on a budget. I'll just put it that way. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to hark on these costumes too much, but ooh, it gets rough at, at some points. Oh, we are. Yes, we are. I'm just saying that when you look at the, on paper, the people involved and what they want to tackle, I believe that they are a team that could really re-envision Dune in an amazing way. And that David Lynch, stylist though he is, isn't the only person that can interpret the material. These people should be able to do it as well. But yeah, you mentioned the budget. They have less than half than what Lynch had 16 years before. Which is basically nothing with inflation. I mean, going from 1984 to 2000, yeah, that the dollar had changed quite a bit. So having $20 million and $2,000, wow. You know, $20 million's a shit ton of money. Not for a sprawling epic. But it's not if you want to do six hours and a lot of <laughs> alien worlds and floating people and space scenes and things. Yeah, 
this really took me back to where television sci-fi was at this point. And I was thinking, this is around the time that Star Trek Voyager and Deep Space Nine were really getting into their computer-generated imagery. My first comparative was Battlestar Galactica, but then I reminded myself that came a few years later. But looking at Star Trek Voyager and things, and Babylon 5, all of that stuff, it was like, this is a little bit worse than Babylon 5, but not much, and quite a bit worse than what UPN was putting on TV with Voyager. <laughs> You're talking about the special effects. And yeah, I mean, the choice that has to be right off the top, we just have to look at this. They made a choice not to film at a desert. David Lynch filmed Dune at a soundstage in Mexico City and in a nearby actual desert. Here, they knew they didn't have the money for that. They, for reasons that no one could explain, I listened to the commentary on this, I read the behind-the-scenes book, I tried to find out everything that I could, and absolutely no one is sure why they wound up in Prague, Czechoslovakia, but that is where they filmed it. Because it's cheap? I guess it must have been. that. Uh, that's how they were able to get the talent they were. A lot of these people were in Central Europe. A lot of this cast is Czech. Some of them don't speak English. So a lot of the extras and all, it was a very international production. And the decision was, the director was very adamant. He didn't want to do a Lucas. He didn't want to have everything green screen with it artificially created. And I don't think he could have done that even if he had wanted to. They made the choice to have painted backdrops and to build sets around, yeah, green screen, blue screen that would create the vastness that they could not film. They went, they had a location scout, they went to Africa, they wanted to do that early on, but they knew that with weather delays and all the hurdles that come with on-location shooting, they just wouldn't be able, they'd run out of money and something would get compromised in the telling of this three-night story. So they made the decision to keep costs low by basically filming it entirely in a soundstage in Central Europe. And I don't think it's well disguised. I mean, I think that everyone that watches this... No, this is not a shock to me. <laughs> ...will realize that this is stylized. What they're hoping that you'll look at when you see this is an operatic. That was the word they kept using. It's operatic. It's theatrical. It's expressionistic. It's a stylish way of rendering the story, much like, you know, Sin City. We can look at that and know they didn't film on location either, but hopefully you're captivated with the way that they use color and and composition and all of that that's what they're banking on is that their justification is okay it's supposed to be operatic that is a lot of what they say yes <laughs> I, all i know is my nine-year-old walked in at one point she's like why are you watching like shakespeare <laughs> with these costumes and, and everything yeah it, it does look like a community play i gotta give her that those bbc film stage productions yeah I would agree with that. I definitely got like more of a fantasy feel off of this production than I ever did off of what Lynch did. There were many times I'm watching this and thinking Games of Thrones. Yeah, it feels like Lord of the Rings with all the cloaks everyone's wearing throughout. <laughs> Yeah, and I will just say up the top that I do feel like you get a fuller sense of the story this time. I've mentioned the fact that there's many ways of approaching the material as an ecology story, as a hero's journey story, but also as an ensemble. And I do feel like they do now, particularly in this first night, feature 
capture a lot of the supporting characters in a way that you realize the vastness of all that's going on. And it's not, you know, famous people walking on for a five-second cameo and then falling over dead. (laughs) Which is what I really expected William Hurt to do, I might add. Well, yes, he gets a little bit more to do, at least in night one. Uh, You mentioned six hours. I know I watched a four and a half hour cut. Are you talking six hours with commercials? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, three nights, two hours each night. But there are two different versions. It's worth pointing out that there is an international television, also known as a director's cut. And then there is a television U.S. version that's about 10 minutes shorter each night. So all told, about 30 minutes shorter. I know mine had boobies in it. I just got a copy whatever the library had because it was hard to find this thing. I'm guessing that's an international cut. Bingo. And I saw that version as well. I'll be honest, I went to Amazon and saw what they were charging for this. And then I went to my local used DVD store and saw they had a copy of this for $3. I'm like, I'll go for that. And... I didn't necessarily care which version it was. It was the director's cut. I always prefer to see the director's cut. I always prefer to see titty shots, so I was happy. Yeah, I saw this movie three times. I saw the director's cut, I saw it with commentary, and then I also saw the US TV cut. I'm so sorry. So I feel very versed in the choices that they made and the story. I'm the Dune fan, right? So I felt like I needed to do that. I'm a fan of the original material. I was excited to see what they might be able to put in here that Lynch just didn't have an opportunity to. And I want to say that I think this is correctly titled. If nothing else, Frank Herbert's Dune connotates that they get more of what Frank Herbert intended from the page. But did they do it well? That's what we're here to discuss. Arnie, why don't you tell them what's in Frank Herbert's Dune? We can get in do it. Well, it's basically what happened last time, right? I mean, really? Yeah, cut and paste job. It's Lynch's version looks quite a bit cheaper and spread over five and a half hours. Yeah, just no sound guns in this one. No, no, I'm, I'd am i say this is a second draft of my plot summary. This is the plot summary from last week, but I uh, went through and edited out things about like the weirding way. So if this sounds like you're having deja vu, well, so did I when I was watching this. In Dune, we focus on a space empire. In that empire are two feuding houses. House Harkonnen, led by the floating fat lech baron Vladimir Harkonnen, and House Atreides, led by the popular and kind Duke Leto Atreides, played by a slumming it William Hurt, and his gifted son Paul, played by Alec Newman. So basically we have Paul Newman, that's right. Due to the Duke's rising power, the Baron has contrived a complicated plot to kill all of House Atreides that involves giving the Duke rule of the desert planet Arrakis, a barren hostile world colloquially called Dune, but it is the only planet in the galaxy where you can mine spice, a drug that also enables all space travel. House Atreides takes over the planet from House Harkonnen, but it's a trap. Traitors inside Atreides succeed in killing the Duke and destroying the house, giving House Harkonnen control of Arrakis again. But Paul and his mother escaped, where they're accepted by the Fremen, the indigenous people of Arrakis. Their leader Stilgar allows them to stay and aid their troops, but once part of the Fremen, Paul begins to lead sorties to disrupt the Harkonnen spicing operations and avenge his father. To the Fremen, Paul takes the name Muad'Dib, the name of a species of mouse Paul saw in the desert. But this is actually sparking in the Fremen memories of a myth of the Muad'Dib who had the power to be in two places at once and who would bring water to Arrakis. 
This legend is fostered by Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, but soon Paul begins to believe it himself, much to Jessica's concern. Paul also takes up with a Fremen concubine, Shani, and they have a son. Jessica, who was pregnant when the Duke died, gives birth to her daughter, Alia, who is gifted with psychic abilities. The Harkonnen Baron steps up the attacks and Paul's son is killed, but in a final battle, Alia poisons the Baron and Paul challenges the Emperor's rule. To make peace, the Emperor's daughter, Princess Irulan, decides to marry Paul, though Paul keeps up with his concubine Shani, who in a voiceover we're told history will call his wife as credits roll. Now, of course, we all know the notorious way that Lynch's version began. You're holding a glossary. A woman is floating in space (laughs) telling you things you can't possibly take in in five minutes. Here, they just do all of that in a much lesser degree. We do have Irulan narrating. We don't see her. It's not goofy, but she pretty much begins as the Lynch film begins. Arrakis, Dune wasteland and the most valuable planet at the same time because he who controls the spice controls our destiny yeah i think again there's just very few lines but i think a simple line that helped me clarify how important that spice is that is that there is no commerce or civilization without that spice that i guess because that makes the space travel possible therefore commerce etc etc but I, i do feel that was helpful but then we just jump like i'm waiting for this big slug monster to show up I, i'm wondering like <laughs> how much of the, this is going to be a retread of what lynch did but no we're going to jump like they're already in space like waiting to do the time warp and go to dune i did miss the giant slug monster instead of weird spacers we get what look like the emperor's advisors from return of the jedi in pink hats doing weird dancey motions i like their hand motions yeah (laughs) they were trained mimes that is not a shock (laughs) yeah that was brought in specifically because of those hand moves and yeah the spacing guild is uh minimalized i think rightly so they want us to get us to paul as soon as possible Paul is our focal character, and so that's what we're going to see. He wakes from a dream of jihad and drinks a glass of water and begins bitching about how he doesn't want to move to Arrakis. <laughs> yeah, I so do not like this pot. Like, he is just whining. I eat responsibility for breakfast and duty for dinner, and, like, he is unlikable. And I, and I guess that's fine if that's going to be his journey that we're going to learn to like him. I don't ever learn that lesson, but uh, he, he's insufferable at the beginning here. He really reminds me of Luke when he's on Tatooine just whining about everything. I noticed exactly what you said, Stuart. I was thinking, okay, we're not starting with the Emperor. We're not starting with the plot. This is good. Introduce me to the people I'm supposed to care about instead of introducing me to the circumstances around them. But in this case, it's the Baron Harkonnen doing all this plotting. In Lynch's version, it was the Space Guild giving orders to the Emperor. Which way is it in Frank Herbert's story? Who who is the originator of the plot against House Atreides? The Baron. Okay, so the Emperor, that was something Lynch added. I mean, I think it's difficult to say, but my sense is that we know the Baron's plot and roll before we ever get involved in the Emperor. The Emperor is barely in the book. Yeah, and he's barely in this movie. His daughter floats around, kind of like an unwanted Paris Hilton type. But yeah, the Emperor is not a big part of this. I'll agree with you, though, Jacob. Alec Newman. Oh my god, he is really, really terrible. He kind of reminds me of Robert Sean Leonard, only with less acting ability. I was going Guy Pierce, but I know what you mean. He... 
I want to recognize that he has a journey to take this character and that if he seems spoiled and entitled and bratty in the beginning, that shouldn't be a bad thing. But I do feel like we want to be pulled in to his journey. In some way, we need to be captivated. And I don't feel like Paul gets a whole lot of chance to even shine. That even though they begin with him, I feel like he quickly gets lost in the shuffle. We get the star power of William Hurt pretty soon. And I don't know if you didn't know the movie last week or the book, if you would expect him to be the main character from the first night. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of characters introduced here. Gurney's going to show up. But yeah, his dad, the Duke, I would have guessed that was the main character if I hadn't watched Lynch's film last week and I was just watching this for the first time because it all, all seems to be about William Hurt in this first night here. And I'll, I'll just say it. Yeah, this is going to jump forward. I think, you know, it doesn't get bogged down on all this lore. But I, I, I kind of like that with Lynch's that there's this overbearing like conspiracy going on here. I guess that's going to unfold, but I don't feel that danger right away. And I'm introduced with this whiny kid. It just doesn't pull me in as much. You're right. If I hadn't seen the previous movie, I would have thought William Hurt was the star. I mean, he's top build. He's William Hurt. I mean, you have an Oscar winner on screen, but yeah, the way this is told, if I was not using meta knowledge, we're being told Paul is our main character. I feel like it does a pretty good job of introducing Paul because we jump right into his meeting with the Reverend Mother who's going to test him. We're going to learn he has abilities. But I feel they do a bad job of introducing his side characters. Like, we get Gurney, and I get a good feel for Gurney, but I'm trying to find the analogs. Who are the no-name actors that are my... Dean Stockwell and all of them. And I, I don't really get a feel for some of the other people in this House of Atreides. Yeah, a lot of them are Czech actors. They, Gurney is British, and he that's he has more of the lines. And uh, he is actually a, a reformed English gangster. He was a London mobster who decided to get into acting. And so I guess they just thought that, you know, he had some cred being menacing. Here he's playing the man that's training Paul in fighting techniques and the Patrick Stewart of the David Lynch world. And I do think if he doesn't seem more menacing, he at least gets more screen time. Yeah, definitely not more menacing. It's weird. There's a lot of knives and like just sharp objects used as weapons for something that's supposed to be in the future that I found that kind of distracting. Again, maybe that's a budgetary thing, but you know, you'd think going into a sci-fi film, more guns, but yeah, gurney, knife expert. And then we saw a knife fight at the beginning, but there's not those shields. I, I guess they put some little effect here, but again, this feels like it almost could be like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones if you didn't have like spaceships flying around in the background. Yeah, I... Would agree. But yet I was seeing the exact same scenes. I mean, yes, the shields looked better last time than they do here. And truthfully, I just wish every actor from the last one was back here. There is not a single actor here with the possible exception of William Hurt who's better than he was in previous times. And William Hurt, let's keep in mind where his career was. He had just come off Lost in Space and he's still lost in space here. I get the feeling he was kind of giving them one take. There were certain scenes where he, it's like he's hes looking off, I'm thinking at a cue card, or the angles are such. I, I think he was just like, yeah, I'm not doing that scene again. <laughs> you know, William Hurt's a strange one because he is always a detached 
presence, even in his career early on when he was much more acclaimed. I do feel like he tended to be sort of aloof and hard to read. And just later that translated into, I don't want to be here, give me my check. And that definitely was true at this point in his career. But he says he was a fan of the book from his early college days and that he wanted to come to this project specifically because he liked the book so much they were paying a lot <laughs> yes well i'm just telling you what he said i i can't see enthusiasm in his performance but then again i think that might be true of many of the performances he would give until a history of violence anyway that sort of re-energized him but you know what i'm missing more than any the performance because i don't think that David Lynch got great performances last week. He just, he exposed the weirdness of his characters and he used whatever energy they had and created a vibe with it. But I'm missing the druggy feel. You know, so much of the movie last week felt like I was on Spice. You know, there was just something alluring. It was a contact high. You watched it for five minutes. You're like, wow, I'm out of my body. Something weird is going on. Here, everything is depressingly earthbound. Everything feels so leaden and weighty. And the exposition is not coming as fast, but I feel like there's no personality. I feel like no one's got any energy or spark. Even when we get sex scenes in this movie, I just feel like everyone's ODing on Somonex. <laughs> no, that yeah, that that is going to be my biggest criticism of this film is I'm bored. Everyone in it seems bored. There's nothing lively about this. I, I found that last week Lynch's film pretty confusing. It was a dense film, but like there was stuff that I dug about it. The certain things, the way they were shot, costuming, some of the effects here. And again, I am trying to give this film every benefit of the doubt with the with these effects with its budget and everything and go with it and i'm just i'm finding a hard time being intrigued by anything what i was thinking as i was watching this is it was an overcorrection lynch's film careened around trying to put too much in too little time couldn't keep up couldn't follow some of the stuff and just huge leaps occur that don't really feel explained here they're doing the exact opposite Everything is going to take so much time, and we're going to be told everything again and again. We're going to hear the same thing again and again. Did you happen to walk out to get a soda? Okay, let's tell you what you missed just a second ago. I think this is something that is actually hurt by being watched on the DVD format. I mean, you can they, it fades to black where commercial breaks would be. At no point does it feel like I'm watching a movie, and it often feels like they're catching me up from what happened on the previous one because information's just hammered home. But I'm going to find some compliments here, though. I'm going to say, first of all, I'm really liking the score in this. They got Graham Revel here. And he's done quite a bit of stuff. We've talked about him before. I'm usually hit or miss on him. Here, I thought the music was good and moody. And they may not have a lot of effects for 3D rendering. But the design of the ships and everything is really inventive. I would buy little toy models of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, there's in no way can I compliment the visuals of this movie. And that depresses me because, again, I admire many of the people behind the scenes here. But I just feel like we're in that awful era of special effects. 
the late 90s when everyone was jumping on board with CGI and they just weren't good enough yet. Anytime we have the, the CGI effects, it never feels integrated with what's going on in the frame with the real actors. And you just have this distracting disparity between people performing against things that aren't there. Like when we get the Hunter Seeker later and it's just, it's so bad. Oh, I'll agree. But I was talking about, I was specifically talking about the spaceships and there's no humans in those scenes. How do you feel about the Royal Engineer? Again, this was not in the book. I don't know why they're going with weird creatures, but I think they wanted to do something to make this moment magical. We all agreed last week that folding space was not fully realized. Did you buy this more that we got basically the creature from Life Force pointing to stars <laughs> and sucking them into a Doctor Who tunnel? Yeah, at one point they say, you're not allowed to look at the navigator. And well, they sh unfortunately show us the navigator here. Right? <laughs> yeah, some kind of like fleshy man bat thing with those blue eyes. That becomes, a, I guess, a tell sign of if you're on the spice. But yeah, again, I just feel like, oh, let's vomit out a bunch of CGI and we'll say we're traveling. I don't feel like this is any more creative. It's just like, it, it looks like the, the space travel screensaver on someone's computer. I pray when we talk about Children of Dune next week, seeing that bat creature has a payoff. Because at this point, I'm like, <laughs> why did you show me this? I do not understand the purpose of this. And it's fine. I mean, it's definitely a bat, so... I don't understand why bats would be the ones jumping through space. That's not a bat. I mean, it's a human being on spice, but I think they wanted to go in something, a different direction than the eraser head baby. And I think, you know, being in Prague, puppeteering is very big there. And I think they just wanted to bring in the locals' talents. Miming and puppeteering. I, yes, I feel like those are their strong suit. Yeah, so they just, they got puppeteers and they, they just went with this. The special effects company is K&B, who also made From Dust Till Dawn. They were uh, the people that Tarantino gave a break early on. And so, who knows? Maybe they had this lying around from, from Dust Till Dawn 2 or something. <laughs> yeah, the face looks awfully depressing. I really liked when the ships jumped to their new space, though. I'm used to the Millennium Falcon or the Starship Enterprise, where a ship is going to just look like somebody's flooring it. Here, because they're folding space, the ship is just very slowly going a very short distance. I thought that was really well realized. I think that as a fan of the book, if I had tuned into this, this would be the scene to make me turn it off. It's about 15, 20 minutes in, and I think I would have seen all that I needed to know that it just didn't have that hallucinatory quality that I grew with even reading Dune that I that I like to get off of it. And it just, yeah, there isn't a whole lot of compelling characters. And yeah, that bat folding the space. I appreciate that it gets us to Arrakis very quickly, but I just, I'm already feeling not tapped in. But I do want to say last week, Arnie, I think you were the one to rightly point out that they never gave any good reason as to why we should be pro-House Atreides as opposed to Harkonnen or Harkonnen, as they like to call him now, or anybody else. Here, I think that they do establish that 
there is benevolence in this new rule on Arrakis. Yeah, I think if you want the lore, again, probably if you've read the book, I'm not really looking for that lore. I just want to know what the actual story is when you don't have to compress it into two hours. But if you want the lore, yeah, you get all this stuff about water, and it looks like the Harkonnen would, what, like, wash their hands and throw their washcloth on the ground, and the Fremen would have to come up and, like, squeeze the water out, and they would sell it in front of the, the house. And you get the idea that there are these little villages around there. They're smugglers. You you do get more of what's going on on Arrakis if you're wanting that. It doesn't really play into the story, but it does build this world. Yeah, I'll agree that this is where I got a Game of Thrones feeling again. It was... I mean, they literally say, hang the coat of arms over there. Yeah, that was something else. And I wish the actors were more engaging. I think the pacing is actually fine if it didn't feel... Like the lines were being spoken in such a manner that it feels like Ben Stein giving a lecture to an economics <laughs> class in Ferris Bueller. I mean, every line here is coming off so slow and so lame. And everybody in House Atreides, from William Hurt on down, are dullards. Yeah, no argument from me. And I think Lynch never would have put these people on screen. I mean, you would always want to give you know he doesn't have to have the best actors but he'll take whatever actor he gets and let them just do their thing and will at least show you why you should pay attention to them i don't know if this lady playing lady jessica is a bad actress i mean who knows she probably kills it when she does shakespeare or something but i know that in this role i don't want to watch her there's nothing about her that's interesting in the performance and pulling in. And I know the book, there's all this intrigue. There's nothing but plots within plots. We should definitely be wondering who the traitor is, who's betraying who. That's the big hook of the first night. Everything is really about the fall of the House of Atreides. So you have to be pulled into the political machinations that are going on. And because of these performances, if they don't care, I don't care. Yeah, I know who the traitor is because I saw the movie last week, but watching it again in this film, I'm, I'm just confused. Like, yeah, who are these characters? Why the, the minutia of this is so slow and plodding? I don't feel danger like I did before. Like, maybe because we opened up with Lynch with this meeting between the Emperor and the Guild, and, like, you know there's a conspiracy. This, I'm just like, oh, you know, what's going on? What What is the point of this story? Because, to me, it's not about danger. Yeah, they're taking over the spice mines, and uh, they got Harkonnen sabotaging them a little bit, but I don't feel like there's this overbearing conspiracy to defeat the House of Atreides. And in the director's cut, you get more of Dr. Yui, the ultimate betrayer. In, in the U.S. version, they cut him down even more it's not even a mystery i think he literally has one scene before he shows up and shoots the duke with the tranquilizer yeah you do find out something about his wife missing that scene is cut in the shorter version that's the only thing that clued me in it was him was the wife thing because yeah he's just not featured enough to be a believable traitor you know there's so many people we're introduced to for more time but i am liking some of the stuff we're getting exploring house atreides we're seeing Paul being brought in under his father, the Duke, to some of these discussions. Paul is able to speak to some of the Fremen ways. We're going to have, later on, Stilgar. We're going to be introduced to him, one of the leader of the Fremen tribes. He's going to spit, and Duke is going to take that as an insult. But Paul's going to realize what it is as a showing of honor, giving some water, the most vital thing on that planet. 
And just seeing some of the relationship between Duke Leto and Lady Jessica, this is stuff that I wanted in Lynch's film and I didn't get. It's helping me to understand the hierarchy and everybody's role in it. Yeah, I agree. I think that this would be what you'd want in Dune, the TV series, that it would have to be about all of these characters and the, the way they interact with each other. Again, my complaint is the acting isn't such that I'm pulled in, but I do like the fact that these scenes are, in, are included because it's necessary. We're going to spend a lot of time with a, a lot of different characters other than Paul this first night, so we want to know what everyone is thinking. And the fact that Paul, at his young age, is, yeah, able to identify solutions like, oh, just pay the smugglers and we'll, we won't have to worry about the problem. These kinds of minutiae, as you've defined them, Jacob, are so much about what the first 120 pages of the book are about. And I do remember you said, you spoiled it a little bit, that Paul ends up marrying the princess and we're going to get a whole lot more of the princess here. In fact, she's going to show up for like some party wearing butterflies as a dress. <laughs> I gotta guess, is this from the book? Or, like, they're like, this will make her look like she's from outer space? No! The biggest change of all. They're pretty faithful in all ways. And even the things they change, I don't feel like it disrespects what Herbert intended. It's just a, it's a visual way of doing something that, you know, would play differently as it's written. But no, Princess Irulan in the book is only featured in passages at the heads of chapters. She is a historian and she is making comment about things that will play out in the preceding chapter. But here they've decided to make her a full-fledged character and a love interest. And so by doing that, yes, they've they've just have a lot of scenes of her showing up at costume balls and yeah, hiring a spy later. This dress, in fact, these costumes <laughs> in general are pretty dismal. Oh man, the, the emperor with his like rainbow sh metallic sheen shirts. I mean, fade with his cardboard triangle posted behind him. Yeah, no, he's got a kite stuck on him. Like that's a costume and. <laughs> Yeah, they look like we raided the prop shop of, like, Disney Princess or something. And, like, you lose, you get to wear Jasmine, Emperor. <laughs> I don't mind that. The only thing that bothered me was the Reverend Mother and the psychic ladies wearing these giant wings on their head that made them look like <laughs> moths. But beyond that, I don't know. I guess I'm just used to Star Trek 66 rainbow-colored outfits. Sure, fine. I'm distracted by the really bad backdrops. I'm not looking at the stuff in the foreground. <laughs> it's really garish, and that is just too bad. Because, again, these are award-winning costume designers, production designers, cinematographers. This movie should be splendid to behold. And no, when Princess Irulan shows up in that outfit, I'm thinking she looks like the kill jar, not like the butterflies. And <laughs> they originally planned to have real butterflies around her, and they all died. So they were like, let's just stick them on. <laughs> So they pinned him to the dress? Well, at first they like, we need to put, do it in CGI. And the CGI people were like, look, Oof. we already were told we were going to do 200 shots. And now we got 600 special effects shots. We can't keep adding more. So they just, yeah, they just stuck it on like, you know, with pins, like a kill jar. It just, it's so tacky. And there's not really a whole lot that she does. I mean, I guess what, by seeing her early, we're less weirded out by the fact that Paul is going to end up marrying her, that there's, 
there's a relationship here when she comes to visit and is flirting with him we we see that they have some kind of attraction but i just don't know what that really gets you as far as who paul will become no like arnie said this is an overcorrection i i, I feel like we haven't got the right you know it, it's goldilocks and their three pairs lynch was too short this is too long i'm still looking for that just <laughs> right i don't need this first act to be an hour and a half i i don't know again i'm getting a better idea of the world but i just don't know how much of all this extra stuff is helping me understand the story. Well, let me bring up the ecology because that is the one thing that I felt like was completely ignored by Lynch. That a big reason that the novel was even written was because Frank Herbert studied desert areas and how scientists, geologists and such were trying to introduce things into the flora and fauna that were going to help it come back and and be green again and that he thought that that would be a, a fascinating thing to explore in science fiction here they're going to give a lot more screen time to dr kynes who was max von Sydow in the lynch version and who basically showed up for one helicopter ride and then got you know his shirt ripped open spouted some water and we never saw him again here i think we do learn a lot more about this character he is Liet. He is actually their leader. He works for the emperor, but he's gone native. He has blue eyes and the local people worship him. And he's the one that's going to teach them all of their ways. He is actually the father of Cheney. Oh yeah, Cheney or Chani as I would call her from the last time, the analog of Sean Young, who is the best upgrade in this miniseries is the concubine character. Sean Young came out of nowhere last time just to screw Kyle McLaughlin. I'm glad somebody had the job that isn't me. I feel like that's all she does in this film, too. No, I feel like there's more there because we'll get there when Paul becomes Muad'Dib, but I think there's a lot more going on in Paul's character. It's just not this first night. This first night does feel like somebody put silly putty over what I was getting out of Lynch's, stretched it way out. I was able to see a lot more details I didn't get, but we're still beat for beat the same. You mentioned the helicopter ride. We're going to get that helicopter ride. It's going to sell me a little better why people like the Duke, and it's going to not have that really awkward voiceover of, I'm in their heads. But it's just a lot more of the same. Where I will say I had some fun, though, was with Baron Harkonnen. When we're introduced to him, I don't know this actor, but we're being shown a planet and then a face superimposes on the planet. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell kind of weirdness is this? They're going to have a talking planet. It looked like something out of freaking Teletubbies, like, you know, the baby face sun. <laughs> and then... It was just really a very slow transition to a fat man. You know, I loved the Harkonnen world. Uh, Giddy Prime was the best part of Lynch's world. I think it was the one he had the most fun because it was the most debaucherous. Here, seeing it reinterpreted as a land of red and... Yeah, there's like a football stadium where they have gladiator games and... <laughs> It's white guys wearing Japanese samurai outfits. So I think that's why we're supposed to hate them. They've, they misappropriated culture and they look really bad in it. And it doesn't help the fact that the barren effect for him floating is, you know, a Ooh. bad <laughs> superimposition that we can see that he's being yeah, carried by something that has been erased out. Like at one point, I don't know if it's this first night, but they're going to have some visitor and they're going to tell the Baron, oh, I always found Harkonnen architecture to be so 
so curious. And like, it's just a drop line. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, we spend a lot more time on this planet, but I don't feel like these Harkonnen are any more dangerous, probably less dangerous than what we saw with Lynch. They're certainly less scary. I mean, here, I feel like the menace. I mean, Fade is just like a frat bro with a buzz cut no what i'll say is this time they're more gay you told me there was a rape in the last movie or from the book and i didn't get any of that last time this feels like they're filming in a bathhouse with a floating guy every look from this uncle to his nephew is rapey it's weird you didn't get it last week never i got strangeness but i didn't get gay uncle nephew relations the way i got here i definitely think another upgrade is fade and the baron because i understand that relationship a lot better we mentioned last time what the hell is sting doing here in that underwear this time i get what you told me was in the book they really do set up fade as the harkonnen version of paul and i like that do we really need all these scenes of him doing Taibo? Because that does not look badass. <laughs> no, I mean, come on, this is silly. And yeah, I, I get what you're saying, Arnie, that it kind of sets up. But the fact that they're going to still wait till the last 10 minutes of this four and a half hour movie to bring Fade versus Paul, it's just weird to me. I guess that's a story problem. I guess that's from the book. A lot of time spent, yeah, with this Tybo, weird, like, sticks fighting stuff, and it takes a long time for it to play out. I don't see it as an upgrade in any way. I feel like we have lesser villains this time, and that is too bad. I liked the weird weirdness of the Space Guild and the Harkonnens, and you just felt like everything was conspiring to hurt this poor little Kyle MacLachlan Boy Scout who was so zoned out and zapped out on drugs, you wondered if he could pull it together and be the spiritual leader that he's expected to. Here, I just have no connection with Paul. He doesn't seem to be like a sleeper that's awakening. He just seems to be disinterested in his future. He seems to not aspire to become the man that his father wants. He just, I don't know what he wants. I, I cannot say. I know that by the first night the house has fallen, he's in the desert, he must lead his mother to safety. This is considered the spiritual part. The second night, the behind-the-scenes crew all referred to this as the one where they would slow the action and show his evolution. So this is where we're supposed to be getting his character evolution and i'm just feeling like this is the worst night of the three yeah it's so weird when the harkonnen finally attack like i remember with lynch you get this whole thing where the mom and paul are in the spaceship and they got to escape like this just cuts and they're just running in the desert like no problems here just got away i guess but oof, talk about where the movie stops like this is painful this second night is bad it, like I, I can't tell you what happened it is so slow like i don't know if anything happened in this oh i thought this night actually was the night that invested me most because this is Ugh. where we start getting into the mythology of the Muad'Dib. This is all about the introduction to the Fremen. This is where I felt Lynch's film fell apart was when they got in with the Fremen. I'm like, what is going on? Why is all this happening here? We're going to really get immersed in this world, and I'll be damned if I didn't really start getting into this and feeling like I wanted to know even more about it. 
this night made me the closest I'll ever come to picking up a Dune book. I'm still not going to read it, but I really kind of <laughs> wanted to. I'll wiki it now. Wow. What's so weird to me is that, you know, Stuart, you said, oh, maybe I want something like a TV show where you can explore these characters. Remember Duncan Idaho? Like, I'm like, what's up with him? And the Lynch show, he like shows up and then he dies. He pretty much does the same thing when we get a four and a half hour version of Duncan Idaho. Like, he's given some mission by the Duke and then he just ends up dying very early on the second night. Like, it's weird. I feel like things should be expanded and I should get into these characters more, but the same things are happening to him as as they happen to him in the Lynch film. Even lesser so. I mean, Thurful at least got to milk a cat for an <laughs> antidote to a poison in him. Here, he literally disappears. I don't think we ever see his fate. I presume he was killed, but all I see is him lecturing Paul for in a few scenes wearing a purple hat. I think, Stuart, your commentary last week helped me to enjoy this more because we're going to see Paul is challenged to a fight by a localist the first time he has to kill. Because you mentioned that being a big thing in the book that he has to kill at each stage of his maturation, it really drove it home for me seeing it dramatized here. I liked that quite a bit. And they don't really play up the weirding way. There's no longer, oh, we'll let you stay with us if you show us how to use your fancy guns. When they meet up with the Fremen, it's more about trust and honor. And I love that Paul just runs away like a complete fraidy cat you know his mother's the one who puts the knife to stillgar's throat and says you must allow us to stay and this is another upgrade lady jessica she is so much more of a character here than i felt she was last time last time she was just hanging around in the background behind paul she had a daughter this played out the same way it's exactly the same thing happened but here, she's going to become the Reverend Mother. She's going to guide Paul's spiritual journey. I get far more biblical here than I did out of Lynch's. And it does make me wonder, you know, did Mary ever wonder, hey, Jesus, do you think you might be insane buying into this hype? Well, yeah, that's the one thing, again, if you're into this lore, that I get more from the second and third night. And there was, I mean, you're dealing with a messiah in that Lynch film, but I feel like here more, you get more of what is this religion? And I, I do wonder, like, you know, now talking about Middle Eastern religion seems like a loaded thing because of, of events that have gone on in the world, but it does feel like, I don't know, maybe because of the world they're using and it's out in the desert it does feel like herbert was trying to tap into something that western cultures maybe weren't as tapped into at the time it, it just feels very middle eastern to me with what they do here there's definitely a big part of that lawrence of arabia being the influence and you could definitely see the that paul is like lawrence a sort of madman westerner who unites all these tribes against his own people arrakis Iraq, oil is like spice. I mean, yes, the, I, I think all of that was very much on his mind in 1965. And in 2002, when they recorded the commentary, it was put to the director. Do you think that this movie has more relevance now after 9-11? Or would you film it in a different way? And he admitted, yeah, I could even see Paul as being like Osama bin Laden, that you could actually perceive him to be a terrorist. 
Yeah, it, it does feel, again, because of recent historical events, it feels uncomfortable at times when they're like, oh, yeah, they're just throwing their babies onto our guns and committing suicide and bombing us to, like, get the upper hand. Like, there is this very radical ideology that I get much more from this version than I did with Lynch's film. Agreed. I got it a little bit last time. I mean, when you use the word jihad, you're catching my attention in a post-2001 world. Yeah, in 1965, I don't know if that would raise flags like it does today, but... I I, I agree. Yeah, because of that word today, mm-hmm. it takes on a different meaning. And now you've got it here in this version. And I'm like, wow, this came out in 2000. Had it been delayed a year, if it was coming out late 2001, I wonder if they would have held back on it, you know, held back on stuff with jihads and promoting desert terrorists against the establishment. Yeah, I mean, Al-Qaeda was hard at work all through the 90s. I mean, there was a high awareness of them. Osama bin Laden was already on the watch list, but obviously 9-11 made it. He became infamous. There was nowhere in the world that people didn't know who he was. That certainly would change things. Even on set at the time, people were going to the director saying, do you really want to use that word jihad? Do you really want to portray these things where it looks like, yeah, throats are a beheading even. It looks like, you know, things that would happen to Daniel Pearl and, and POWs later. I mean, the uncomfortableness of the Middle Eastern imagery that they use it was just something John Harrison did not want to back away from. The director very much wanted to perceive the Fremen as people that were tough and had their own fighting style and were not soft or even needed a leader in order to fight. They were already well-trained and barbaric. What they needed the leader for was to guide them into the direction of taking over the planet and the world. To crush the empire, they have to take down spice production. And I do think one thing they do explain in this version is that relationship between the spice and the worms. Yeah, it's hinted at in Lynch's version. Here, I finally understand what they were talking about. I was... I felt happy. This is what I wanted was to understand more. I wish it was more entertaining while explaining, but at least I'm getting it. Yeah, no, we find out what the water of life is. It's worm vomit, I guess. <laughs> like they flood a little area so they can capture a baby worm and they make it puke or something and catch that. And that's what you got to drink. Yeah. And we we see the scientist, Kynes, actually dies because he's walking through a field of pre-spice and it just sort of erupts, kind of like a an oil rupture or something. Just out of the ground, suddenly spice explodes. And after it's treated by the sun, it becomes the property that everyone knows and consumes. And it all comes about from the nest eggs of baby worms. Here's the thing. I don't think Lynch wanted you to focus on on all those details last time. I thought he saw the sexual potential of all of that. There was so much eroticizing and the phallus of it all. Here, these clearly, they're going for, they're segmented. They look like dragons. It's it's much a different conception of the worms and what they mean. And I do feel like, yes, it's explained more. I find them less evocative. I find them less interesting or even threatening, particularly because the special effects, while not great in the Lynch version, are even worse here for the worms. I've never liked the Fremen. I mean, I'll be honest. They, I always find that the hard part to get through in the book and that we spend so much time with them in night two. Chaney, to me, is just a real drag. Yeah, again, this second night, 
is poison to this miniseries. Like, wow, I really tuned out and was wondering, where is this going? Why are they spending so much time here? It feels like, again, Lynch is my my reference for Dune, so it feels like they took a lot out of that first act. Maybe they were faithful to the book, but they sped up that first act, and then the second act, wow. I didn't expect this much time of just sitting around and, and pondering in the desert. And I'm liking the relationship being at least more spelled out. And where it goes, I really am kind of shocked by. I mean, they're going to have a son, and then that son is going to be killed. Um, That is kind of the revelation of Night 2. And I'm like, damn, I had no expectation of this coming, having only seen Lynch's. Sean Young didn't give birth that I remember in Lynch's version, and so it makes it deeply personal. But one thing I notice in both versions, and Lynch actually explains it a little bit, Paul always seems strangely emotionless and detached. And in Lynch's, we do see Kyle MacLachlan having been exposed to Spice and say he doesn't feel anything and he it may help explain MacLachlan's underacting. But this is the case for this Paul, too. And I don't know if it's this actor, Newman, or if it's intentional that Paul the Muad'Dib is just this emotionless cardboard line delivery i mean i mean how much does he really care for cheney the words they're saying and the kisses they're having tell me a lot but the tone of his voice and the way he looks at her she could just be a prostitute he's hired you know it's a real mistake that we're not on his side i mean i went back and i watched lawrence of arabia recently wonderful film high high recommend everyone should go watch that on the biggest screen possible and peter o'toole is magnificent in that because you see that conflict of a man that is gaining all this power and influence and isn't sure what to do with it for him it was just an adventure it was a way of trying to you know rebel against a society that had put him in a box and then when he got all this power he didn't know what to do with it you had a clear empathy for the the situation and the tragedy that he was backing himself into. Here, Paul is becoming more native. His eyes are going blue. He has met a girl and had a child and believes in the myths that are in place. Now, something I feel like neither version of the movies tell us very well, but is in the book and I hang on, is the fact that the myth was fabricated by the Bene Gesserit. They made it up. There is no Muad'Dib. They use that to control people. The reverend mother that they have on this planet, it's all about control. They like to have people lying around that if they get into a jam, they can say, oh yes, let's exploit this superstition and it will help us get out. Jessica wants to do that. She's just like, hey, we were kicked out of our palace and we need to survive until we can come back and kick some ass. But Paul believes his own myth. And is that delusion or is that self-actualization? I think in the Lich version, it's very much like transcendental meditation. You can overcome your situations if you believe hard enough. And here, I just don't know what they want us to think. Yeah, I know. You Again, you gave some hints about the way the book goes. And I feel this 
is probably more true than that because we're, we're not going to see any crazy uh, voices like cracking the earth or making the rain happen. Look, that's an interesting thing, especially with Western cinema being so into this story of the Messiah. Like every hero's journey is about someone basically becoming God and saving the day. Like to be able to explore then go, oh, maybe that's just all a myth and made up. And here's this person buying into it. I, I just don't feel this film effectively tackles that though. There's lip service given that, you know, maybe this isn't the real deal. Maybe, you know, you're, you're buying into your own hype, but I, again, explore that more instead of sitting around in the desert doing whatever they do. It was enough to hook me because I did understand that the Muad'Dib thing was supposed to be fake and Jessica was exploiting it and that Paul starts to believe it. I mean, the fact that Paul is like, I want to be named after this little mouse. What is it? Oh, we call it Muad'Dib. But we've already been told Muad'Dib is this mythic person. Well, just to clarify, there's the Mahdi, which is their messiah, and there's Muad'Dib, which is the mouse. Oh, that was confusing me. I thought I thought it like was Harkonnen and Harkinen or whatever, however they said it. It, I, it sounds like they're pronouncing the same word in different ways, but it's just a coincidence that Messiah sounds a lot like mouse in this culture. Mouse-siah, I get it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and boy, by the way, that mouse, I would not want to be called it. I would not want to look like it. But the fact that Paul starts to believe his own myth the way i take it is he is becoming self-actualized and i think that's proven in night three but i like this question in the middle of is he just insane or mad with power or something it makes it more human it makes it more relatable it makes it drama in the abstract i could see that i'm just not getting it from the film though the way a film should portray it so you do believe he is becoming a hero would you use that word a savior. It's kind of like when Cheney asks him, will we ever have peace? His response is, we will have victory. Th that's kind of my answer to you. Is is he a hero? Well, he's their savior. Is he a heroic person? Well, kind of. I don't know. I got to read more books. He does <laughs> free the people here. He does give them control of their own planets. He does take down the evil... Harkonnens. Are you cheering for that? Is I guess my question is, is that an exciting thing to see or do you feel it's a descent into delusion? For me, yeah, you, you talked about Osama bin Laden. He seems so cold and so willing to sacrifice the Fremen. I mean, here's the poor little rich boy coming from another planet using, an, you know, another culture to basically get his way to self-actualize as the hero. I never like him. Like he, again, th these battle tactics, and, and maybe this is rooted in history, but what I'm seeing here, just I'm looking for the justification to be so ruthless and we're going to throw our babies on their guns to destroy him. I, he seems like a cruel leader to me. Yeah, I wish that they could strike the balance better because again if the framework is Lawrence of Arabia you need to at least like the youthful spirit of the character you need to believe that even if he's delusional or that this attitude will ultimately catch up with him and he'll pay for it you at least love it when he you know does something crazy and leads all these people across the desert on horses and no one believes they can do it and they take Aqaba and and here when they come back to take our keen and their planet back 
I'm not cheering. Yeah, you, you talk about this ecological message in Dune. What's so weird is by the end, Paul is like, look, I'll just flood the planet. I'll destroy all the spice, kill all the worms. No one will be able to travel. I'll destroy the world to get my way. Like, wow, you're, you're going to kill a, a whole uh, animal life and, and all this stuff just to get your way? It, I guess, again, going back to like Robert Downey Jr. and being that cocky Iron Man, I could go with that, but I'm not getting it from this actor or from this writing. Yeah, the actor if this is what he was directed to do then i'll blame the director but the performance being given here is so stoic and so off-putting that i'm not quite sure what i'm supposed to believe but it left me hooked at the end of night two to get into night three where night one it just felt so much like what we watched last week i didn't get that into it night two it explored mythology if this were doing the series, I think I'd set up a season pass on TiVo. But one thing I really feel like is a waste of time is it's finally part of the way that he unites all of these different sieges. We actually learn that the Fremen aren't just one people in a cave, but several. And we see several people coming and uniting and all of that. But he's going to teach them the weirding way of the way <laughs> that his mother has taught him. You kind of disappear and reappear somewhere else. Yeah, the Matrix had been out for about a year. I think they have a couple special effect shots that imply they want to do that kind of bullety time. <laughs> magic but they just it doesn't seem like they have a real good conception about what weirding way is it's not really explained that well in the book so they have nothing to go off of and i also feel like when we watch these climactic scenes nobody is doing it no one is actually using that we get like one shot of the weirding way i, I guess i feel like it's just like a, a type of martial arts I mean, again we talked about fade and Conan and, and they do a lot of Taibo or ninja stuff there. I, I guess this is, you know, their Kung Fu style for the Fremen. But yeah, the fact that we get to this big battle at the end and we'll see like one person use it. Huh? Like they made such a big deal with those voice guns being the weirding way in Lynch's and to see it here, all this again, lip service given to it. And then meh, it doesn't seem like it really mattered. No, they didn't seem like he brought them a gift that saved them. They ended up just kind of punching and kicking like they always do. And they're just lucky because they're fighting a bunch of sous chefs. The Sardaukar, <laughs> I, I want to point out, Sardaukar did not come across. I don't think they were in Lynch's version. They were a big part of the book. SS, they're from a, a planet that's double S. I mean, I think a big Hitler metaphor here. They're the baddest of the bad. They're the emperor's secret army. Are these the ones in all black with like the French berets kind yes. of on their heads? Okay. <laughs> it's the big poofy chef's hats that, uh, yeah, you're supposed to fear them. They're not supposed to be involved. They are, the emperor is not supposed to be interfering in these matters. And yet it's a scandal that the Baron has used them and, and, smuggled them in to help secure the city under his control. Yeah, the Sardaukar should be the, the most fearsome stormtroopers that they have. But I think it's the choice of hat. I think it's the fact that we're not really seeing them do anything. I think it's just the problem that almost every battle scene in this project is really underfunded and you know they're embarrassed by it they give it as much as they can but on almost every battle scene you feel it underwhelm you but these are not the sardaukar that i imagined in my head reading the book all right the battles never excited me here whoever they were fighting against the battles that excited me most were Fremen versus Fremen. You know, when Paul has to have his first kill and the suspense of will he kill Stilgar? That actually 
really wrapped me up in this story is Jessica saying you have to find a way to not kill him. But when Stilgar first is introduced and he finds out about Paul, he's like, someday Paul is going to have to challenge me and kill me. Those fights mean so much more to me than any of these massive battles. And I use the word massive very loosely. Yeah, I mean, Lynch didn't do much better with his battles, but this is, you know, 20 years later, even though it's less money, I guess they could have done something. They got some pyrotechnics, like they they got people flipping around, mimes, acrobats, puppeteers. I guess that's what you get in Prague. Yeah, I, I guess so. But I, I, yeah, the problem seems to be, you're right, that the relationship between Paul and the Fremen is clearly defined. The relationship of the Spacing Guild, the Baron, the Emperor, the Sardaukar, how it's all coming together, how they're kind of trying to control the spice production. I don't feel like this is done any better here than it was done in the Lynch version, and it's just not very satisfying. I will give the Baron one prop. The one scene I really enjoyed in this movie, I think it's the only one time I ever laughed, was that he's with his little slave boy, and he calls Fade in because Fade has planted a, a needle in the thigh. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> It's a it's a poison needle in the thigh so that when the Baron had his way with this poor boy, he would get stuck and die. So the Fade knew that that would be a temptation that would probably take the Baron out. And they have to strike this bargain where he's like, why don't I kill you, Fade? Partly <laughs> because I still want to get laid with you, but probably also because I can't trust Raban, who's the guy, your brother, who is in charge of spice production, who's screwing everything up. Yeah, again, I get more of a sense of who the Harkonnen are and, and their relationships in this TV series. But for all the times given to him, I, I still don't know why that much time is given to him. Like, yeah, I feel like there should have been more of Harkonnen versus our treaties here. And, and the fact that the Emperor is going to step in at the end and it's mostly Paul trying to get the trust of the Fremen. Like, th- those are the big relationships. It feels like the Rebellion and, and the Empire, they're not going to really get to hash it out in this big epic. Yeah, I mean, they try to give everyone someone to, to, to fight back with. Raban is going to be taken out by the Fremen. They all surround him and knife him, and he'll scream to the heavens. Alia, who is the prematurely born child that Jessica drank that water of life and, you know, produced that creepy kid. She's kind of creepy. She's not nearly as creepy as what Lynch did, but then I wouldn't expect them to out-creep Lynch. Here she gets to take out the Baron, and yes, Paul gets to have a fight with Fade. And I really don't feel like this does anything more than what than Lynch had. It kind of looks more like the Karate Kid to me. <laughs> it's like Danny LaRusso, and uh, <laughs> except we're rooting for the blonde guy this time. Yeah, and he's got his hair. Like the one thing that Paul does, you know, when he's a, like a prophet, because he finally like spikes his hair up. He gets some gel, I guess. Gets some some <laughs> worm stuff to put in his hair to do. William Zabka is that his name? But yeah, whoever yes. the like. <laughs> Billy Zabka, yeah. I feel like we're watching a remake of The Karate Kid at this point, and I'm supposed to root for Cobra Kai. It's weird. (laughs) I am just cracking up at the end with these outfits, that weird robe thing that Paul is wearing. You do, you get an awesome Space Guild moment. The Guild does not take your orders. (laughs) Like, I wish there was more of that stuff. Like, look, if you're not going to have a budget, cheese it up. I feel like I could have at least enjoyed that a bit more. I feel it's sufficiently cheap. Easy, but uh, maybe not in a good way. I, you know, it is what it is. 
I at least liked understanding what the point of this battle was. Last time I'm like, why are we fighting with him? This time I'm like, okay, I get the whole point of Fade in this story. Yeah, I, I get him more. I just, as far as a narrative goes, and again, we've talked about this with a book, it's it's different. People want to sit down and spend hours of the book. With a film, I feel like you, you got to be more concise, and I, I still don't understand why this fight is. But what's weird to me is, you know, Lynch has this habit of, like, weirdly just doing these cuts and, like, oh, I guess this happened in between cuts. Like, and we get that here and for as much time as we're going to get. Like, we're going to find out that Paul drank the water of life. Like, we never see it. It's just all of a sudden he, like, faints and has a vision and faints. And oh, yeah, he took it. And we get that at the end here. Like the princess shows up. I guess they get married. Like it's it's heavily implied. We're not going to see a wedding or anything, but we'll get this monologue about how important concubines are at the end. So I, I guess that's not a Cheney's not his wife at the end. Yeah. That was weird, wasn't it? I mean, was it just me that he's marrying a princess who was hitting on him earlier? But yet they're saying that history will call the concubines the wives and here's him and his concubine in a romantic sunset. Well, what about the princess, his convenient wife? Yeah, it's all very strange, particularly since history is written by Irulan. She's actually going to literally write the history <laughs> books. I'm not sure that's true, Cheney, but I think what they're getting at, it's undersold in both movie versions, but Jessica was never properly married to Leto because the Duke always wanted to keep his options open for helping out House Atreides. That if he was a bachelor, he always had the option to marry up and help the whole, you know, universe. He could heal it with the right marriage. He could advance himself. He could do well by his society. And she never wanted to get in the way of that. So she just was his concubine. But of course, because we like storybook romances when we watch movies, we want to see true love, put a ring on it. And so this ending basically shows that a concubine can be more loved than a wife. I think that's what it's getting at. It reaffirmed that the Duke loved Jessica and that Paul loves Cheney more than whoever they might have married for politics. And this is a world where you got to remember that so much is done, the, the bloodlines and all are controlled for political reasons. That romance, feeling, emotion, these are not characters that are ruled by that. Yeah, there's a big reveal at the end that the Baron is actually the father of Jessica. I'm not sure. Again, that, that might be a big revelation in the book that plays out somehow here. It just seems like, you know, a last second soap operatic revelation here. It, yeah, again, I feel like I'm getting a lot of stuff from from the book, but I'm still not getting why it's important, even in this expanded version. I think that it's setting up more stories to come, and I thought it was a nice resolution. I thought it was really interesting that now Paul is the heir to the Emperor's throne. I think this is really... All right, It's fantasy's not my wheelhouse, but this is an intriguing tale for it. So... I was kind of going with it. If I wasn't completely satisfied, I'm like, well, I know Children of Dune's coming next week. That's true. And it's actually a combination of two books. I've read one of them already. Dune Messiah will be, I guess, rolled into Children of Dune. And I'm very curious to know how they'll incorporate those ideas, how much they'll actually take from the page and work it into the movie next week. But before we get there, I guess we got to wrap up our thoughts on Frank Herbert's Dune. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Frank Herbert's Dune? Jacob. I, I don't want to say if I recommend Frank Herbert's Dune or not, because I feel like that is the book. <laughs> and 
like I said with Lynch, I think if you enjoy this, it's probably because you're a fan of that book. Like, I'm watching this as someone, again, fantasy's not my thing. I feel like there's a lot of fantasy elements with all the different tribes and all that. You'll get more of that. I feel like I approach this very intellectually. I was the Spacing Guild wagging my fingers as I watched this because I <laughs> I never got invested into it emotionally. I watched it, oh, okay, this is what that tribe is. And, oh, okay, this is what that story means when I see some more time devoted to it. So I, I get more of the mechanics of Dune, I still don't get into this story. And and that was my ultimate problem with Lynch's version. Like, I liked a lot of the imagery, but I just, I ended up not caring about Paul. And I ended up not caring about the fate of Dune. And I feel like I'm still there with this expanded television version. And look, I'm, I'm giving this a lot of leeway with its bad special effects because of its limited budget. There are some hilarious costumes that would get a chuckle out of me every now and then. I, I, I'm trying to look all past that and go, what is the story here? And I'm still just... I'm not intrigued by this character. I just, whatever is intriguing for people who love that book with Paul, I don't feel like we've got a good translation of that. So I'm, again, super fan of the book. You, you, you'll probably enjoy this, but uh, someone that's not in that place to say, I, I, I'm going to, as a newbie to it, I'm going to say not recommend. Stuart. Well, I don't know if super fan is the right word, but I really do like Frank Herbert's prose, and I really feel like reading it independent of my enthusiasm for Lynch, there's a lot to celebrate that wasn't in that movie last week that somebody should do. But, you know, it's mentioned in this movie that spice gets into everything and that its flavor just sort of infects all things. And I also think that's true of Sci-Fi Network. No matter what they touch... Somehow their bland characterizations and their garish costumes and their cheesy special effects, it just, all their products just end up having this very distasteful element that's just in everything. It just, I don't know, it's a turnoff. I don't know what else to say except that I'm not against TV miniseries, but I am against this production. They just didn't have the right budget and they seem to have too much time on their hands. I think by making it three nights instead of two, they really pushed this story past the breaking point and, and took interesting concepts until they were not interesting anymore. And so I, I blame the production. And they try. I mean, these are talented people, behind the camera at least. And they just don't have enough to pull this off. I'm becoming more and more convinced that if you were going to make Frank Herbert's Dune, you've really got to radically shake it up. You've got to tell it in a way that allows people to get excited. And I feel like so much of the way the story is told on the page with so many tangents and minutia bits that being faithful is never going to give you a compelling movie experience. Somebody's going to crack this one day, but I don't feel like Frank Herbert's Dune has yet to come to the screen, and I don't feel like this movie's very good just in and of itself. So I don't hate this. I'll give it the compliment of saying it's probably the best sci-fi movie we've ever reviewed for now playing, <laughs> but that's still a pretty dismissive not recommend. Yeah, I'll agree it's the best sci-fi thing we've reviewed here, and it is a sign of sci-fi getting better. I became a fan of that Battlestar Galactica series. If this led to that, then this was worth it no matter what. And you talk about shaking it up, and I did look this up, because 
We have this coming out in 2000, and 2001 would give us Fellowship of the Ring, which did change up Tolkien's book a little bit, but also did try to include so much of that minutia for the Tolkien uber fans, and Harry Potter, the very first movie there, Sorcerer's Stone, where people were freaking out. How could you cut this out of the book? How could you cut that out of the book? Until the movies just kept getting longer and longer and eventually split into two. They haven't cut enough out because I've never been able to get through that movie. Yeah, we're not, we didn't do Fantastic Beasts for a reason, folks. But it seems like we entered an era where geekdom refused to allow adaptations of books and instead wanted unabridged video versions of books. And that's not what a movie should be. And I've given some defense of this and talked about how I was interested in it. Let me be sure I call out every flaw in this, because there are, are many. At no point is this movie visually interesting, other than the times I'm like, why didn't they just go to a sand beach? I mean, something to get outside. Give me something that looks better. Every CG effect. I can applaud the design while I damn the rendering and the just lack of funds they have some of the creative choices the weird creepy space traveler bat person all of that and the acting in this is really poor i actually i guess i like the princess i thought she brought an airiness to her that worked and I'd say runner-up best actor would be Baron Harkonnen, who at least he brought energy to the role. I still don't think he's fat enough. Yeah, the ones who could cheese it up the most. Yeah, I'll give you that. Baron made me laugh. He gets something. I still don't think he's fat enough. I think we needed somebody like, if the theory is they're too fat to walk so they float, we needed Gilbert Grape's mother in there. That's what <laughs> would sell that to me. But he... It was at least an amusing presence. But overall, this thing is long and dull. And I would agree with you, Stuart. Two nights would fix this. It would really make this a strong recommend. But what this did do was, I think I finally understand why there's so many damn Dune books. I never understood. I mean, I'd seen David Lynch's movie. I'm like, my God, who would write that? And then to have licensed fiction after Herbert died. I'm, why would you do that? And now I'm like, you know what? This is an interesting world. This is a world I want to know more about. I wish this movie was better made, but I thank it for introducing me to this universe. So I'm going to just sliver it over on the recommend side. It's the very weak recommend, but wow. And you you see, I had the exact opposite reaction where I went back and watched David Lynch's doing like on fast forward just to enjoy some of the visuals there. Like I wanted to get away from the world because of this TV show. Yeah, I definitely feel like this will make you appreciate what Lynch brought to it. I get that he screwed up the storyline. And if you want coherence, you're not going to get it from the 84 movie, but man, there was style to it, and it had something that just was compelling that you couldn't look away from. Here, I never feel captivated. I can't say that there's anything about that this would grab you. You're, uh, Jacob, you will agree with me that Lynch did a better job than this production. Oh, yes. I didn't hate that film. I, I, it intrigued me. It, it was confounding by the end, but I would watch it again in maybe you know another 10 years. I would never watch this TV thing again. 
I'll agree that Lynch's film is far more visually appealing, and it does have a good trippy nature to it. It's just a great visual design, but I'll never watch it again. And you say you can't look away. When I watched it for the Pitch Black Riddick review that I did when I just wanted to see the differences, I looked away a lot. I was multitasking quite a bit because I was just trying to trying to get through it. I wanted to sit down and watch it. I sat down to sit down and watch it. And no, when the story doesn't cohere, you're not going to hold my attention here. The story cohered. It was kind of a dull story, but it cohered. And this kept my attention barely for a four and a half hour running length. And I'm judging it as a miniseries. I would not want to go into a theater and watch this. If they were saying, oh, we're doing a Dune television miniseries marathon at AMC. No, I'm not going. But for what it was, for something spread over a few nights, and I did watch this over a couple of nights, I did not marathon it, I thought it was adequate. Uh, okay, well, here's what I would advocate. If you're intrigued by anything that you saw here or last week, join me over at Books and Nachos. I've already reviewed the Frank Herbert Dune. I'll be getting the Dune Messiah, its sequel. And that book, as well as Children of Dune, are the basis for what we're going to continue to explore in film next week when we get to Susan Sarandon's <laughs> Children of Dune. I, I don't know if they're calling it Frank Herbert at this point. I know that they put her all over the poster art. It does say Frank Herbert's Children of Dune on what I've read. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll see how close it is. I see a lot more Susan in all the print ads that I've looked through, but I'm intrigued to see more of the story told. I think it's sad that Lynch never got to make those sequels he had written. Can I say it was sad sequels were never made, not that he wasn't the one to make them after what he did with the first? Well, I, you know, again, I'm not sure. We'll see about scope. The scope of the second story is... Certainly very different, and I'm curious to know how they're going to handle it and how you guys will respond to it now that this so-called Messiah has to make good on his promises. I'm really interested in seeing where the story goes, and I didn't feel that after Lynch's because I'm like, okay, it's raining, it's over, I don't care. Here, this did a better job of setting up a universe that I want to spend more time in, so I'm actually happy we're going back. And if you're not, well, we have... Reanimator on Friday. All right, I'm really excited for that one. I cannot <laughs> express. And yeah, it is going to go to a sci-fi. Is it a sci-fi channel? It did get the same time as sci-fi. Well, a little bit after sci-fi's release, it got its R-rated, unrated DVD release. It just hit sci-fi before it hit DVD by a couple weeks. I remember that time, but. I'm hoping that it can somehow best Frank Herbert's Dune to be a great film that's beyond Reanimator, the third film. But the first one is a cult classic and one I have not visited in decades. I, I Everyone has always said this is one of the great horror movies of the 80s. I don't remember it that well. So I look forward to catching up with it, reading the H.P. Lovecraft original story and delving into it with you, Arnie, and Marjorie this Friday. Marjorie is a huge fan of that original, rated version and she definitely has a place in her heart for beyond reanimator and i'm gonna bring an interesting point of view is i like different things about that original film and i have a 
warm spot in my heart for Bride of Reanimator, the second film. So if you want to hear what the hell I'm talking about, we could really use your support and we'd love you to join us on these shows. These are our platinum level donation shows. If you head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top. We've already released all five of our fly reviews, all eight of our 1986 horror movie reviews, and now we're to Reanimator. And if you enjoy this show and what we've been doing with David Lynch, before that, Marvel movies. Coming up in two weeks, Star Wars Rogue One. If you enjoy hearing these reviews and the frequency we put them out, we need your support. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate or click the banner at the top. And we thank everyone who's donated so far. And while we're talking about our donation series, remember, we are giving away a copy of Deadly Friend on DVD. (laughs) If you had some spice, I'd be interested. Deadly Friend, oh boy. But it's just autographed. Yes, by Christy Swanson. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a novel thing. I saw the photo. I'm sure that was a lot of fun to get. Did she make a face? Was she like hoping you would be having giving her Buffy or something more reputable? I gave her Buffy as well. Okay. And The Chase. The Chase is one of my all-time guilty pleasure films. Oh, okay. But yes, I also gave her Deadly Friend. Sadly, she wasn't very chatty. We didn't get into all the behind the scenes of Deadly Friend the way I sometimes get when I'm at these conventions. She was just happy to take all my money and... Got very upset that her handler tried to undercharge me, but (laughs) I spent some of that money for you listeners to have a chance to win. You just have to go to the Deadly Friend page. If you go to our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, go to Deadly Friend under the Horror of 1986 series. There's a link there to our forums. All you have to do is post which of the movies we're reviewing as a donation series this fall is your favorite. You don't have to donate to enter. And it doesn't have to be Deadly Friend. It could be a good one, like The Fly. Yeah, or From Beyond, or Reanimator, the show that's coming out this Friday. But just enter to win, because this could be your Deadly Friend for the new year. And Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. And until next week, the podcasts must flow. the sea but a person needs new experiences they draw something deep inside allowing him to grow without change something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens sleeper must awaken. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Dune Movie Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Will we ever have peace, deep? We'll have victory. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's reviews and analysis of Frank Herbert's original Dune novels. I've thought of many pleasures with you. 
come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, The Shining, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. This place is changing me. It's the spice. It's in the air we breathe and the food we eat. I can't escape it. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Whatever the need, we have the breed. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm Paul. Men are waiting. Me? Right now? It's time you participated. The time of plots and revenge is coming to an end. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Health and long life are the gifts of the spice. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I've seen how they died. <laughs> I'm dead to everyone unless I try to become what I may be. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Remember, one thing to gain control of your perceptions quite another to gain control of your desires. And if I succeed? You'll find reality to be quite a bit different than you thought. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. He is a natural leader, like his father. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. What's in the box? Pain. The pain! No! Enough! No woman, child, ever withstood that much. Now playing credit narration by Brock. The voice from the outer world, ringing the holy war, she had. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The first step in avoiding a trap knowing of its existence. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Some thoughts have a certain sound. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. Be sure he recalls his flimsy denials when he's face to face with death's sweet smile. The saga of June is far from over.
Today we're discussing Frank Herbert's Dune, starring William Hurt, starring William Hurt, starring William Hurt. Are you, are you not sure if it's starring him? I'll keep barking. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, who was pregnant when the Duke died, gives birth to a daughter, Aaliyah, who is the gift... Aaliyah? I mean, you know. It was 2000, I had Aaliyah on the mind. <laughs> you know. B -b baby girl. <laughs> yeah, I so do not like this pot. Like, he is just whining. I eat responsibility for breakfast and duty for dinner. And, like, he is unlikable. Yeah, like Luke in A New Hope, right? And I, and I guess that's fine if that's going to be his journey that we're going to learn to like him. I don't ever learn that lesson, but uh, he, he's insufferable at the beginning here. He really reminds me of Luke when he's on Tatooine just whining about everything. Yeah, I just <laughs> said that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I feel like it does a pretty good job of introducing Paul because we jump right into his meeting with the Reverend Mother who's going to test him. We're going to learn he has abilities. Another star cameo. I didn't know Cher was going to be in this. Huh? I'm the only one that thought she looked like Cher? No. No, you are. No, he is. Or no, he isn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't think it looked like Cher. What? I didn't either. But then again... I mean, unless it's Cher, I don't think it looks like Cher. I don't think of Cher that often. <laughs> Line delivery. I mean, how much does he like? How are we pronouncing her name? Cheney. Cheney. Yeah, it's like Dick Cheney. Bush and Cheney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh... 